We have talked on the morning show on a number of occasions over the last couple of years about gender and just the fact that this topic has reappeared again and again in the, 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 the guise of, of various uh, intriguing and uh, revelatory books demonstrates that this is an issue that is not going away. And if anything, it is becoming a progressively more pressing issue. Our understanding of what gender is and uh, how our society is structured around gender, how we as a whole collectively view gender, and how individuals are wrestling as well with gender expectations of gender, uh, gender equality and inequality. Uh, So much has happened, and it feels like it has happened in an instant which is not quite true. Uh, a lot of this wrestling has been going on for a long, long time, and, and, and of course the study of gender is nothing brand new. But uh, needless to say, it is an exciting and intriguing time for anybody who cares about this topic deeply. I'm excited to be able to speak for the next few minutes with Barbara J. Risman, who is Distinguished Professor of Sociology at the University of Illinois uh, at Chicago. However, she is speaking to us this morning via the telephone from uh, the UK because she is also a fellow at the Institute of Advanced Studies at Durham University. Uh, But I am so glad that uh, she can join us through the wonders of modern technology to talk about her brand new book, which is called Where the Millennials Will Take Us, A New Generation Wrestles with the Gender Structure. Uh, And um, this is a book that is published by Oxford University Press and uh, is sure to be regarded as one of the most important books on this most important topic. Professor Risman, we welcome you to The Morning Show. I'm very pleased to be here, Greg. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad we can have this conversation. And again, it's, it's a topic that we have approached on a number of different occasions uh, in, in recent months, and uh, it, it feels good to be doing so again uh, with your really, really interesting book. Uh, I would uh, love for us to begin with uh, a question about you and your connection to this endlessly fascinating topic. What first drew you to the whole notion of of gender and the possibility of studying it within the context of your academic life? What a great question. Uh, Well, it brings me back to my days as an undergraduate student, actually, at Northwestern University. I was a student during the era when the Equal Rights Amendment was being um, discussed, and I just presumed that it would pass eventually, because I couldn't imagine that anyone would vote against women having equal rights. But the state of Illinois was actually the last state to vote and voted no. And that uh, was a really turning point in my life because I was at that point still an undergraduate thinking about, should I be a lawyer or should I go to graduate school in sociology? And I decided that I had to understand why people could vote, even women would vote against their own equal rights. And that led me very directly to the study of gender. But the study of gender didn't exist um, back then in 1974 or 5 when this was all happening. Uh, And so I started studying women and families. And eventually I realized that the questions I was asking 
were bigger than women's rights, and they had more to do with the whole way we think about how what sex you are determines the whole rest of your life. And that led to the development of the field of the sociology of gender, of which I was a part. Mm, certainly. And, of course, this, this fascinating book uh, very much springs out of that. I, I was going to save this next question for later in the interview, maybe for the very end, but I feel compelled, actually, to ask it now and, I'm, and, and answer it to whatever extent you're comfortable. Uh, in the acknowledgments, you touch on your own personal life. Uh, as you are thanking various people for the help that they have given you and the difference that they have made in your own life and, and, and in your, your, your academic work and, and in the construction of this book. And you end the acknowledgments by, by thanking your family, including your husband, Randall Liss. And uh, you touch on what sounds like a, a very, very intriguing life partnership and intriguing uh, particularly in the way in which your own husband sort of views the, the matter of, of gender and gender roles and, and, and so on. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to, to have you speak a little more about that, and in particular, uh, how, how the way gender has played out, for instance, in your own marriage, what kind of effect that has had uh, on the work that you have done, or, or has the work you've done affected your marriage or a little bit of both. I'm just kind of curious about the interaction between your professional okay. and personal lives. Uh, well, this is a second marriage, so it's a marriage that's uh, uh, eight, seven years old. So it's a, it's a marriage that followed two other marriages that he was married before and I was married before. And I think that what's interesting is that this marriage shows how much flexibility and change is possible. We often wonder when we talk about gender, how much of it is gets inside of us. We're just raised little girls to be nurturing and warm and friendly and boys to be go-getters and, and uh, breadwinners and uh, really push ahead. And that's Therefore, that's why they behave the way they do when they go into heterosexual relationships. What I think this marriage shows is that we're all quite flexible. My uh, husband, uh, in his first marriage, was a primary and sole breadwinner. His first wife never worked outside the home. Her, she stayed home and raised two daughters. And he was an, an entirely traditional marriage. Uh, in this marriage, he's partly retired. He's also a financial journalist. But he basically supports my work. My work takes me all over the world. After I leave the U.K., I'll be a visiting professor in Spain in uh, April and then in Italy and in Amsterdam in May and June. And he's very happy to uh, be the supportive partner and to he's a great cook he loves to wherever we are to explore all the new open-air markets and different kinds of foodstuffs that are available and to make fabulous meals and uh so in that sense what i think my marriage shows is how uh flexible that people really can be we are not locked into the 
gendered expectations or gendered behaviors that we have done even for decades. And I'm just curious, uh, was this uh, consciously very important to the two of you, or is this just something that is just a, a happy part of what is a happy marriage on many, many different levels? I think it's a happy part on what uh, has been a happy marriage on very many different levels. We did not decide that this was what was going to happen when we married. He was still working in the finance industry at that time as an educator, and he had a business. Uh, we uh, might have just been like many couples with each of us having our own primary work and supporting one another over time. My work kind of, especially the international uh, component of my work kicked up and his work kind of slowed down a little bit. And we decided that this was, uh, uh, that we would much rather spend our time together than have me take all these trips and be gone for three months or six weeks or even two or three weeks that he would much rather uh, cut back and what he was doing and he, what he, his work is flexible and can, and portable and that he, we would rather be together hmm. uh, than me traveling myself all the time. Right. Well, thank you for answering that. And it's, uh, it, it somehow helps me even understand more some of what you say in the introduction when you say that, uh, that you want to openly acknowledge that you are writing from a particular standpoint. And that, Absolutely. Uh, as... I, I think we all do that, but very often authors forget to acknowledge that they live themselves, have had certain experiences, and, and uh, those experiences shape what they're interested in and what they write about. Mm. I'd also like you to clarify something also said in the introduction as you tell us, in a sense, who you are and where you are coming from, both literally and figuratively as you approach this topic. Um, you, you call yourself a second-wave feminist. Um, I, I would love to have you just clarify really what that, what that means in sort of a bare-bones way, but also what that means for you specifically, particularly in this kind of work. Okay, so the important work there, word there actually is feminist. That is, I do this kind of work. I study gender because I uh, oppose the kinds of inequalities that having a gender structure imposes on all of us. I think that the inequality around gender as well as other categories uh, – shouldn't exist. And so I'm trying to understand it, but I hope that by understanding it, we can in some ways overcome it. Okay. So that's what, that's why it's important to know why I study this and that that's what the feminist means. The second wave is really an acknowledgement of the generational, um, the generational experiences that I have lived through. That is, I'm 61 years old. I was young during the ERA, during the Women's Liberation Movement. I have lived through that moment in social history where 
the problem that had no name, which is a phrase by Betty Friedan, was named the uh, discontent of middle-class women, often white middle-class women, when they realized that um, life just wasn't playing out the way they'd hoped. Many of them were college-educated, and in some ways, uh, a college education trains you to use your talents and to go out into the world, and then in that generation, women were often expected to withdraw from the world when they had married and had children. And so that was part of the push for the uh, second wave of feminism. And I lived through that. I was part of that. I think it's important that the reader knows something about the author's experiences because it may influence the way I write. And the reader uh, is a is more uh, informed when they know something about the perspective of the author. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Barbara J. Risman, who is a distinguished professor of sociology at the University of Illinois at Chicago and the author of a book called Where the Millennials Will Take Us, A New Generation Wrestles with the Gender Structure. Uh, you really sort of outline for us, in a sense, that whole notion of of gender as social structure in the the second chapter of the book, which, uh, among other things, sort of tells us where we have been and uh, different ways in which this has been studied. And you remind us that that really uh, this is a a relatively new field, and uh, I suspect that as someone who has been part of it. You know better than anybody just uh, how, in a sense, what it is like to be uh, in the middle of, a, of an emerging field of, of, of a- academic study, uh, even as it sort of finds its way and, and, and maybe chooses different points of, of focus. Uh, what have these first few decades of, of gender study been like? Very exciting. Uh, they've been very exciting because we didn't really have the concepts uh, to follow, and so in some ways we had to create them. No one studied gender very at all, really, until second-wave feminists became academics. It wasn't until women entered the academy and started asking questions, at least in Uh, sociology, and I actually think in psychology as well, that the idea that maybe women's place in the world as as secondary actors is withdrawing from the world uh, when they had children uh, was something that was worth studying, something that was worth questioning even. Uh, When I wanted to study this in my doctoral program in the early 1980s, there was no way to take a doctoral preliminary exam no way, in gender because it didn't yet exist. I had to take it in family and social psych. And if that's the first time I tried to teach a course in gender, which would have been in the middle 1980s in uh, North Carolina State University, I was told I could teach it, but only if I taught a course about gender in families, because the uh, 
curriculum committees couldn't imagine that gender existed in any way that mattered outside of families. And that, uh, in, in a nutshell, shows you how, just how far we've come in three decades after that. The notion that uh, gender inequality doesn't exist in workplaces, you, you know, but no one would even uh, suggest that was a possibility in 2018. Hmm. Not, uh, but in the 1980s, that was just assumed to be the case, that the reason we had uh, gender uh, differences of men and women in different kinds of jobs and making different kinds of salaries is because that's what women wanted. Hmm. And so uh, to be able to be part of actually an intellectual revolution, when we start, first we started studying um, how gender socialization shapes us as individuals, and then uh, a decade later, people started realizing that something was going on beyond just socialization. And sometimes we all behave in very stereotypical ways, not because we want to, but because if we don't, other people uh, make us feel awkward. They, other people do what sociologists call police us. They, they treat us as if we're strange because we're not behaving the way they expect us to because we're men or women. Uh, and so we started this whole uh, theory of thinking about gender as doing gender, something it is we act almost in a, a performative way as, a, as an, you might on a stage in a theater. And we do that because if we don't, people are going to think uh, we're immoral in some way. We don't fit in. And then, we, and then a decade later, or, or in some ways, different people around the same time started realizing there was something else going on. That is, we've organized our workplaces in such a way that it's really hard to be a caregiver and a earner at the same time. And we could have only done that if we presumed that earners didn't have any responsibility in actual caretaking uh, behaviors for anybody at all in the world, for young people, for sick people, for aging parents, maybe not even for themselves. And so that's a way in which it's clear now that that affirmative action for men, because historically, men have either had wives or haven't needed them. Uh, and so it's been very exciting to see all the new um, ideas and explanations for the inequality evolve over time. My role in this uh, evolution of ideas has really been a peacemaker. That is, there, were a, there was a decade or so where there was a lot of arguing between people. No, what's really going on is people are socialized, so by the time they're adults, men and women just want different things, versus other people who said, no, it's not about men, how women and men are. It's about what we expect of them. And my work is basically a theoretical framework for saying, let's stop arguing that it's about 
socialization or it's about expectations. It's actually about both. And the scientific question is, what is the explaining your question right now? What what part of it is about socialization? What part of it is about the organizations that people work in? What part of it is about what we expect from one another? And so my theoretical work has really been to try to complicate the story and say it's not either or. It's both and. And we really have to think uh, carefully about in any given moment in history, what is the most important um, phenomenon that's causing people to either change or is constraining people so they're not living the lives they really would rather live. Hmm. I wonder as you think about the way in which this has been studied over the last several decades, to any significant extent do you think the work of academics like yourself have how much has that work been a driver in the way that society has come to change when it comes to gender and gender expectations and stereotypes and so on? Uh, or or is it is it simply that that you and your colleagues have been observers of the changes that are already taking place over this volatile period? Uh, I mean... Has it uh, has it made a difference as a driver, or or good or? and hard question? <laughs> I would like to say both and again. I think in many ways we're observers, but on the other hand, when I was doing the research for uh, this new book, and uh, in particular when I would talk to a group I call the rebels, people who are really pushing back against gender categories themselves. Many of them would cite um, the work, not so much of sociologists necessarily, but uh, of people they'd read in, co- in college, like Judith Butler has a book called Undoing Gender. And many of them would literally cite that book and, and say, just like Judith Butler says, I don't have to be feminine just because I'm female. And many others would, rather than cite individual authors, would talk about what they had learned in women and gender studies or sociology or psychology classes or from books that friends had given them. And so I do think that for the millennial generation, having been raised in a world where these new concepts were floating about in the kind of air around them, it was a very freeing um, experience that they could take um, discomfort they felt in their own lives, and they had words and, and concepts and explanations for how to talk about them and how to uh, feel as if they could make change because they knew what was going on. And so I do think that it's a kind of cycle we observe. People read, and it affects how they think, and that moves forward. The best example I can think of this, honestly, 
is in the Black Lives Matter movement, there's a great deal of talk about intersectionality. And you can hear uh, in many youth movements today, people talk about, they use the word intersectionality, meaning that you have to think carefully when you say what women feel or what's happening to blacks, that you have to think, is, it hap- is the same experience happening for black women and men? Or when you say women, all women or white women or Asian women or middle-class black women, that we all have many different descriptors. That word comes from academic uh, writing, from uh, Kimberly Crenshaw is really um, an important figure in that. She's a legal scholar and Patricia Hill Collins, who is a sociologist. So the academic words, the notion of intersectionality, has now become a word used widely by youth activists. And I think that's an example of academic work um, really influencing the way people see the world. Mm. One thing you mentioned in the introduction that intrigues me quite a lot is when you say something about how your own work, uh, at least at one point in time, was criticized for being too structural. And you you say that you have actually done some serious revision of, of some of your earlier work. Can you just say a, a brief word about what, what you're talking about here and, and, and about the, the way in which uh, you've come to maybe regard at least some of the work that you did as too structural? What do you mean by that, that, that term? And, and is that also maybe something that, that other people uh, in this field studying this topic have uh, perhaps been prone to do as well? Okay, so I'll, I'll answer that in two ways. Um, my early work was entirely structuralist, meaning I was, my hypotheses were that if men and women were in exactly the same social roles, they would, be the same, they would behave the same. And all the differences we have measured and seen uh, between them would disappear. Uh, over time, my own research suggests that that's actually not the case. For instance, I did studies where uh, you had men raising children alone, so they were, uh, the title, a title of an early piece of mine was Ken Men Mother, and they, these were men whose wives had, were deceased or had um, uh, deserted their families. And my, my um, hypothesis was very much about their, when it, I said two structural social position, that as soon as they became primary caretakers without wives, to do the nurturing, they would become in, uh, really very much like single mothers. And I did a quasi—you can't do experiments with human beings, thank goodness. But I had a quasi-experimental design, which is I compared these men to single mothers who had children their same age, and to men and women who were married. Um, one group of whom were in the labor force full-time and one group of whom the mothers were full-time homemakers. And what I found was that my hypothesis was not entirely correct. These men did become more like mothers, 
but they didn't become exactly like mothers. That is, whatever uh, femininity and masculinity had had, they had been socialized to adopt actually began to change on me- on measures of femininity. These men moved about half of the way towards women. That is, they began to see themselves as more nurturant than any other men in the sample. But they didn't see themselves quite as nurturant as the women in the sample did. And so I had to I began to realize that there's something other than social position going on. We also know that in workplaces, when men and women are in exactly the same uh, job title, when a man is very directive, he's seen as a good leader. When a woman's very directive, she's seen as, a word I won't say on your ear, but it begins with B, <laughs> uh, and it's five letters. <laughs> right. And so what I came to see was that it's not just about what position men and women are in, because even when they're in the same positions, they've still been raised differently, but beyond that, people still see them differently and react to them differently, even if they exhibit the same behavior. And so rather than it being simply about what social position or structure you are in, you have to think more deeply about uh, how gender operates. And in this uh, model, what I've done in this revision is when I look at what's going on for the individual and what's going on in these expectations and how we've organized a society, I try to think about both the kind of material reality, the things you can touch and feel and see, and also the cultural reality, the things that are that you can't touch or feel or see, but the meanings people give to those. And so I think we have to think very much about both meanings and the actual material conditions of life. Hmm. And so this in this book, I am... Um, very much focus on culture as well as structure. We're speaking with Barbara J. Risman about her book, Where the Millennials Will Take Us, A New Generation Wrestles with the Gender Structure. So let's talk about millennials and uh, what it means to, first of all, study this particular group. And uh, I, I think it's really interesting that, uh, that one thing that... Uh, is, is true about when we study millennials is that if we are studying millennials right now, we are studying millennials at a particular point in their individual and collective lives. And, and at least generally speaking, when we are talking about millennials, we are talking about them and you are looking at them as emerging adults, which of course in and of itself is a really intriguing concept. Uh, so it isn't just Millennials are who they are because uh, they were born in this particular framework of time, but where they are in life's arc is at a particular place and a very intriguing place that a lot of sociologists and psychologists are just now beginning to realize uh, is a really important phase in life, and, and it's unfolding very differently for millennials than that same period of life unfolded, for instance, for you or for me. Uh, 
Talk about Absolutely. that complexity. It's not even clear that this, this um, elongated stage of life existed necessarily in previous generations. So, so uh, my interviews were done in 2012 and 2013, which means millennials were indeed in what psychologists call emerging adulthood at that moment. They were between 18 and 30. Uh, and what emerging adulthood is, a, it, it too is an exciting kind of field of study because it was literally um, named and discussed only within the last uh, decade or so. And that is because the way our society has changed. It used to be by the mid-20s, even early 20s, most Americans had married, settled down, and were in the kind of jobs they were going to stably remain within uh, and were already beginning procreation. Nowadays, we have this elongated period of post-adolescence, but before what demographers usually measure as adulthood, which is uh, living in uh, a one environment for a stable period of time, marrying, uh, for some people having children. But really, that movement into a, a, a stable period of life. In contemporary American society, people are not marrying till the late 20s, uh, and they're often not even through with school until the late 20s. Uh, and so they're, many of them are living with their parents all the way up until they're turning 30, and we have this boomerang generation, which all has to do with uh, a series of uh, historical um, events that the millennials didn't create, right? They didn't create a system which leaves them in debt at the end of college so that they start off life, you know, very much um, worried about finances and didn't create the um, real estate market, which makes it so hard to rent or certainly to buy when you're a young person. Uh, so that they're, they're, their lives are shaped by the historical moment in which, of course, they came of age. And so they spend this, their 20s, if you will, in this new moment new stage called emerging adulthood and that's where i did my research now many millennials now are older than that right this is already 2018 so some of them have emerged out of this stage and are now moving into that sort of prime moment in their uh lives where they're in their um adult careers but for my sample, I interviewed them right in the middle of the uh, period of emerging adulthood. And I think that's really important, particularly for one group of people I talked to who I kind of call the straddlers. And that's because they, their answers kind of, in some categories, they're rebellious. In other categories, they're very conservative. In other categories, they're kind of innovative. But they're very, in some senses, confused. They're, they're still in this moment where they're trying to figure out where and how they're going to live their lives. And that's really what emerging adulthood is all about. Mm. 
among the many interesting uh, points made as you talk about this generation and their attitudes about gender uh, is that, first of all, it's, it's a very complicated picture. We really cannot speak with sweeping generalizations or we sort of do so at our own risk. Uh, and, 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 and one th- thing that was particularly interesting to me was uh, one study showed uh, that in, in some respects uh, this, this current generation uh, in 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 some specific ways, has become actually a little less progressive than the generation before them on the matter, for instance, of gender equality in the home. And I mean, it, it's a relatively minor point, I suppose, but it's just good to be reminded that that history is not just about a an unbroken uh, march towards more and more liberal and progressive ideas, uh, but in, in in certain cases, sometimes there is a a step backwards or a step to the side or whatever. It's not a straight line uh, by any means, and maybe particularly with millennials. I think that's a really uh, important point. There is, however, a good deal of debate still about the that study, and there there is a st- one study that shows that for some high school students there's a decrease in the percentage of uh, people over the last decade who are support gender equality in the family. Uh, I myself have a piece of research that's not yet published. It's under review with two colleagues, uh, uh, Ray Sin and Buddy Scarborough, and we did a longitudinal analysis of the general social survey data on attitudes over time from the 1960s all the way till uh, present day. And what we find really in our analysis is that the big shifts started changing in the 1970s, but by the 1990s, there was pretty much agreement that um, men and women ought to have uh, equality in the labor force, but there was some people who still remained that in the family there should still be uh, distinct roles for women and men. But those people tended to be older male and, and even older than baby boomers. So we actually couldn't find – we couldn't replicate those, that study that showed that millennials were moving – uh, we're in a more conservative ter- uh, direction, but I do have an a explanation for why that study um, might have found that, and that is this generation of millennials is the most diverse ethnically and racially, but it's also the most diverse in terms of the highest percentage of immigrants oh. in many decades. And so as we have more people from more different places, we have, in some senses, uh, uh, deceptive averages. That is, we have different groups of people with different opinions. And so when you put them all together, you get averages that change. But I don't actually think that we're seeing generationally a change. Right. And uh, and in some cases, what we're talking about are, are attitudes and opinions and perspectives that perhaps were shaped someplace else 
exactly. in, in another That's culture. That's a fascinating point. Yeah. Uh, as you examine the millennials, and of course we don't have enough time to, to go thoroughly through all that you explore in your book, uh, you, you talk about different kinds of, of um, millennials who you, you found, I mean, some distinct categories. I hope we have time for you to just touch on these four basic groups, the true believers, the straddlers that you've already mentioned, the innovators, and the rebels. Uh, okay. Just outline uh, just sort of what is behind these four labels and uh, how, in, in a sense, collectively, that, that makes this group we call the millennials so intriguing. Okay, so uh, I like to think of these as different strategies that millennials are using to wrestle with the gender structure. The first one is that you mentioned is the true believers, and these are millennials, most of whom have been raised in literalist faith traditions. Lots of different faith traditions. It isn't just one, but every denomination has congregations that go from those that are very metaphorical and and see the text as um, as stories to understand ethics, and then those that see the words themselves as very literal. And I found that the millennials who were true believers in men and women being really different and it being okay and reasonable for men and women to have different life paths for parents to have stronger and different rules for girls and for boys were raised in literalist faith traditions whether they were evangelical christians or muslims one orthodox jew they 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 uh the people who believed in gender inequality if you will or at least essential gender difference that required different roles in life were had god reasons for doing so and so that's the uh, and 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 I think it's really important to remember that there are millennials who are in literary faith traditions, just like there are people in every other generation. Uh, the, then we have the innovators, and the innovators are what you might think of as traditional feminists. They're people who think that men and women ought to have the same opportunities and the same uh, and no constraints people shouldn't be um, uh, forced or encouraged to go into particular professions just because they're women or men who think that men and women should equally work for a living and share the responsibilities of child rearing and heterosexual couples but what makes the millennials different from previous generations that in previous generations Feminism was a women's movement. It was a movement by people who were feeling um, that their lives were constrained by gender. And in this generation, the interviews I did with male innovators sounded very much like the interviews with female innovators, in that I don't think that feminism among millennials is necessarily only a female um, identity. In fact, what I found, which I thought was really interesting, was that when they talked about the gender socialization and the, and the ways in which, ch- as children, they were um, what sociologists, what I call police, they were, they were um, 
bullied if they broke out of gender norms. The men talked about much more powerfully negative experiences than the women. The women were not um, dissuaded from doing things that were traditionally masculine anywhere as much as the men were um, convinced that if they did anything that wasn't that was the least bit seen as girly, whether it's playing a volleyball game or taking a ballet class, their peers would come down really hard on them. And so they, they felt the sting of gender, I wow. think, and gender constraints very much. Hmm. So uh, for the innovators, I think the important thing to remember is that feminism isn't just for women anymore. Uh, that rebels were like the innovators, but they too, I think they're particularly a new millennial uh, group, and that is they were not only against gender constraints, they were also against having to present their bodies in particular ways just because their sex category was male or female, so that the they use some of them, not all, use words like identity labels as gender queer or agender or gender fluid. That is, they rejected the category of being woman or man. They didn't just reject the stereotypes of the category. And I think that's a pretty new uh, identity, a new – we have always had transgender people in society, and I have some transgender folks in this uh, sample. It's a gender-diverse sample. Uh, and some of the transgender uh, respondents were very um, comfortable with gender categories. They just were in the gender category that they hadn't been labeled at birth. But I had others, both transgender and people who did not consider themselves transgender, who just rejected being called women or men at all. And that, I think, I call them rebels because they're, that's, they are really rebelling against having a gender. Mm. And that, I think, is new and different among millennials. And then I've already mentioned quickly the straddlers or the people who answers were so inconsistent that you really couldn't believe you were talking to the same person for an hour and a half. They would say uh, something about themselves being a woman, very aggressive, very independent. And then the next thing I know, she'd say, but um, on a date, I expect my the man to pay for everything and invite me out and uh, take me home afterwards. And they, she would just sound like an incredible – and so I think they the, – these – Straddlers were still, as emerging adults, struggling with all the change that was going on around them and not knowing exactly how they wanted to navigate it. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And so interesting to think about uh, in, in, in the last chapter of your book, uh, a world in which we might potentially move beyond just about any of these constraints outlined, uh, a world in a sense without the lines of, of gender so so clearly uh, delineated and the way in which millennials as a generation are, are wrestling with some of these questions uh, is is also a way for all, all of us to to think about gender why it matters should it matter as much as it does should it matter at all 
uh, and your book does so much to uh, to help us think about that in, in, in new ways. The book, again, is called Where the Millennials Will Take Us, A New Generation Wrestles with the Gender Structure. It's published by Oxford University Press. There is a lot here, a lot to take in and, and a lot to think about. And its author, uh, Professor Barbara J. Risman. Professor Risman, I really have enjoyed this conversation. Your book is thought-provoking in the best sense of the word, and I thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. I very much enjoyed it, Greg. Thank you for having me.